He started last week by making mention of the rugby, so I thought I would start by making mention of the rugby as well. So if you like the rugby, we won. The, we being the Wallabies beat the British and Irish Lions, which is, what, four countries against one. So we won. Which, in some ways, I was thinking about this. I mean, this is a tangent I'm thinking out loud. But anyway, let's run with it. It's really four countries against, like, two states and a territory, isn't it? So, you know, that should be humbling. Um, Okay, so we're continuing our way through John. I'm going to read to you John 19. And specifically, we're going to start from 26b. John 19:26b So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha There they crucified him and with him two others one on either side and Jesus between them Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfil the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. uh, I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal. I uh, I grew up saying that a lot. (laughs) And now my kids say it a lot. I grew up and I grew up in quite a competitive home with my brother and my sister, we would compete and it always, always wanted to be the king. I always wanted to be the one who was the king of the court. So if we were playing basketball, it was like, okay, I wanted to be the one who was the king of the court, which normally meant being able to jump up, spin around and, and shoot and get it in, which would then lay claim to being the king of the court. Or we played this fun game, we made this game up, which perhaps we didn't make up, but we created... Anyway, uh, we, would, we had a swimming pool in the home that I grew up in and uh, in the deep end, there was a step to get out of. And we, we created this game called King of the Step. And it really just meant that someone would stand on the step, sort of half in the pool, half out. 
And uh, the other two, normally myself and my sister with my older brother as current king of the steppe, we would do our best to compete to become king. And so we would try and pull the present king off so that then we, and then try and push the competitor out so that we could get on the steppe and then we would be king of the steppe to try and defeat anyone else trying to pull us off. And it was a cracking game that could go on and on and on. And I loved it because at certain times I was king of the steppe. <laughs> And it's funny, isn't it? I mean, we would find all sorts of things to be competitive over as children. And, uh, and, and of course, I grew out of that. So, <laughs> as, as adults, we aren't that different, are we? During the week, I was looking at different things that people compete to be king of. And it's really funny. I mean, king of the step is such a childish game, right? And yet, you, as adults, you can compete to be king of air guitar, there's a world air guitar, so pretending that you're playing an imaginary guitar, you can actually be the king of that if you wanted to pursue that, if you thought, I want to be king of air guitar. Or there's this, there's this weird thing in England called bog snorkeling, and you can be the world bog snorkeling champion. You can be the king, if you like, of someone who finds there's this ditch, and it's full of muddy, boggy water, and you put on your snorkeling goggles and flippers, and uh, it, they basically time you from going from one end to and back, and you have to do it as quick as you can, and if you have the fastest time, you're the king of the bog snorkeling championship. Weird, huh? But of course I grew out of that, or did I? Because I remember we took, it's only last week, last Friday week, a week ago, uh, we, went, we took our youth group of the church ice skating. And of course, uh, he's not here, but I've got permission, he's, he's actually asked me to share this. Um, Alex Shaw and I were there, Alex is another guy that helps lead uh, Soggy, and we were at this ice skating rink, and of course it didn't take long between, before Al and I are battling to be king of the rink. And uh, the, the kind of culmination of who would be king of the rink, uh, this is at Macquarie Ice Skating Rink, if you know it, ended up being that we would see who was the quickest. And so we started at one end, and, uh, and it was a race to the other end, first to touch the wall on the other end. And uh, off we went, and gliding as fast as we could. And uh, Al, Al had me. Alex had me for sure. We had about 10 minutes to go. And normally you'd slow up, right, because it's ice, and you don't want to hit the wall. <laughs> But I wanted to be king, <laughs> so I hammered all the way into that wall, and you heard the bang, right? CJ was there, she heard the bang, I hit that wall so hard and I was not king still. Uh, but I guess that is a demonstration of the pursuit of being king. I want to be king. We walk through John uh, 18 and 19, and John is kind of showing us this theme that Jesus is king. Jesus is the king. And it really is culminating here in this passage of Scripture which you've just read and John wants it to be stunningly obvious to us that Jesus is the King. Not, not King of the Rink, but the King. And so as we walk through this, really there are three points that I want it to be clear for us. Jesus is King... And there is no contest. Jesus is king and he is in control. And thirdly, Jesus is king and he is full of compassion. Let me run through that again. If you're taking notes, it'll be helpful to have that down. That Jesus is king and there is no contest. 
that Jesus is king and he is in control. That Jesus is king and he's full of compassion. Now, I tell you, I was chatting to Mike Pasolich about this yesterday. Jesus is king and that is clear. And yet each of these three points, I couldn't exhaust. I could, I could preach one entire sermon on each of these points. There is so much to be said on each of these points and elaborating on the kingship of Jesus, that he is king. And I feel overwhelmed. I feel out of my depth. And, of course, a good thing to do when you are like, I don't know if you do this, but I want to do this. Would you join me? as we seek God and ask for his help right now. Lord, John 19 helps us see that Jesus is king. But of course, we need your help to see that. Would you work by your spirit? Would you help every single eye in this room, the eyes of our hearts, to see that Jesus is king? And as your words are spoken as your words from John 19 are proclaimed and preached, that we would be hearing the divine and that you would be piercing our hearts and our minds that we would encounter a glorious King. Amen. So the first point, Jesus is King and there is no contest. If you remember last week, if you're here, if you weren't, that's okay. Last week, uh, Dave Taylor, our pastor, was taking us through how, in essence, Jesus is now being challenged by the high priests of the, the ruling Jews, if you like, the Jewish leaders, and they're taking Jesus to Pilate, who was the Roman ruler for that area. And they've kind of trumped up this charge. In essence, it's sedition, which is just a fancy word for saying that that they they were saying Jesus is guilty of this charge of trying to be like Caesar, trying to be like the one who really was in charge, trying to be like the king of that area. And the the Jewish rulers are are pushing and manipulating Pilate in, in a manner so that they can actually get rid of Jesus. And so this charge is used to kind of twist Pilate, who found Jesus actually not to be guilty. Who found Jesus not to be guilty. But because of the charge that they're bringing, he had to act and he had to be severe. Because he can't be found to be weak if someone is actually trying to compete with Caesar. And so, Pilate, if you like, becomes an instrument to the Jewish leaders. And they, the Jewish leaders, get their way and Pilate approves of Jesus being charged and then treated as someone who is, who is a rebel, who is the charge of sedition, trying to be a rebel against the, the king. And so that leads us to this passage. Look with me at verse 17, the competition, how they're competing over who is the one with the power, who is the king. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Pause. This was normal. Okay, this was normal. If, if someone is, is guilty and uh, found to be uh, guilty in such a manner to be crucified, it's normal for there to then have the charge written above them so that everyone would be able to see what they're guilty of. But this is interesting. Let's see what they, they charge Jesus of. 
Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So Pilate, having been, as we heard last week, in some ways manipulated and having his hand forced to act in a way that he didn't want, Pilate, the one who wanted to be in power, in king, be the king, if you like, in this situation kind of wants to reinstate his challenge that he is in power, he does have the power. And so he, here, as the one who can write the charge that he's going to be placed above Jesus, kind of wants to taunt, get revenge at the Jewish leaders. And so he words his charge against Jesus uh, as Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The wording is a deliberate taunt at the Jewish leaders. How do they react? Let's have a look. Verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. They felt the sting, didn't they? They felt the sting of Pilate's charge. They felt it. They didn't like this taunt. But Pilate said, verse 22, Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. And so there's this contest going on, this debate about Jesus being the king. And it upsets the Jews and Pilate is just kind of using it to, in a way to actually show that he's the one in charge. This constant debate, who is king? Who is king? Who's the king of the castle? And who's the dirty rascal? Let me make a few observations about what is going on here in this. In this, who is the king? Jesus is the king and there is no contest point. Firstly, isn't it incredible that amidst, amongst this debate... Amongst what's going on here, Jesus is silent. If, as we've walked through the entire chapter, 19 chapters thus far of John's Gospel, us, the readers, it's stunningly clear who is the true king. And we recall in John 1, the word became flesh, the word was God. Jesus, the word. Uh, John 2, Jesus, the one who who takes molecules of water and transforms them to be molecules of wine. Jesus, the one who we've encountered and we've witnessed, his power over sickness. Even from a distance, he heals with his words. Such power. Jesus, the one who with his words raises his friend Lazarus back to life. Such power. Jesus, the way he shows compassion and care for for others, whether it be Jew or Samaritan. As we've read, as we, the reader, have come to chapter 19, it is so clear who the true king is. And it's no contest. And yet here he is silent. And what I find really interesting and really cool is that in this situation, what Pilate intended to taunt, God intends as irony that we might see that it's true he is the king. Pilate's intentions, in some ways, are still used and served the living, true God. See, the the charge was the king of the Jews. And what's cool is it wasn't just one language, but it's multilingual. As if this is the king of the Jews, but the king of the Jews would be the king of the Jews for all. The king. 
as we look at this passage, we ought to see that Jesus is the King and it's still proclaimed, even Pilate being a voice to, to God's truth. It kind of reminds me of Philippians 1. Paul spoke about in Philippians 1 how there are other people who are proclaiming Christ. And he kind of said that in some ways they're doing it out of rivalry and envy and selfish ambition, kind of like Pilate, right? And Paul concludes it doesn't really matter as long as that Christ is proclaimed. And we see that here. That Pilate has been in some ways a vehicle to the truth being proclaimed so that many would see this sign. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, the King. The King. And there is no contest. Another observation about this on a, on a deeper level is, again, is this debate that goes on, this kind of out there debate and people are contesting the kingship of Jesus. Many voices arguing and saying, no, he's not the king. Trying to pull him off the step, if you like, back into the pool so that they can get onto the step and say, I'm the king of the castle. They don't want to say, Jesus is the king. On that out there kind of sense, on that out there level, I wonder if we were present how we would feel as these many voices are debating who is the king and, and contesting the kingship of Jesus. If you were present 2,000 years ago, I wonder if it's not that dissimilar though, that far off, being in the classroom and the many classmates who are contesting the kingship of Jesus or in the university lecture and the lecturer or your classmates contesting the kingship of Jesus or at the workplace or in your family, many voices right around us contest that Jesus is king argue and try and pull Jesus off the throne and say he is not the king. Jesus is not the king. Whether it's pluralism and saying maybe we'll say that he was a king or that he thought he was a king. But no more than a king. Just like we might follow Buddha or someone else might follow Muhammad. Don't you dare say that he is the king. Or the charge of atheism in saying hey, he is nothing. We don't even need him. All these voices that you can see going on in this outside, out there debate, contesting the kingship of Jesus. I want to encourage you, I want to urge you, when those voices are there going on, this debate about the kingship of Jesus, which voice will you listen to? The voices out there contesting the kingship of Jesus or the voice, the one true interpretation the one who knows all things because he made all things. The one who said, behold, this is my son. This is the king. It's a temptation, isn't it, to listen to the many voices amongst the debate that goes on out there. When that's happening, don't let their interpretation rule your judgment. Let the true interpretation, let the one who knows all things, his interpretation, dictate your judgment. Come back to the word of God and who he says Jesus is. Jesus is the king and there is no contest. And so that might be going on out there, but here's something else that happens. I think debate and, and the contest of the kingship of Jesus isn't just something that goes on out there, but it's in here. That's certainly what I find. I find that within me, I contest the kingship of Jesus. That within my own heart, I want to pull Jesus off the step and get on the step so that I might be king of the castle. 
And it's in different things, different ways, whether it's uh, my way, not yours, Jesus. And it might be simple things, whether it's the way that I treat others. And sometimes it's just harder to be loving and easier just to be short-tempered. And, and I get on the throne and I rule and what I want rules. Even if there's consequences, I kind of have pulled Jesus off. That contest for kingship, I can test the kingship of Jesus in my own heart daily, guys. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all fall short of giving him the glory usurping God and then lifting ourselves up. Here's what's interesting. This charge that Jesus was given, a charge of sedition, rebellion against the king, resulted in Jesus dying as someone guilty of such rebellion. And as I look within and realise that that's actually what I do to Jesus. And really I'm the one who's guilty. And so therefore, really, I'm the one that, because of my sedition, my rebellion against the one who is truly king, I, I should be facing that punishment. And John 19 shows me one who, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? See, I'm the one who is guilty as charged of sedition, of rebellion against the king and yet here is Jesus dying that death. Not guilty and yet my guilt, my sin on him. That in that moment he would have my punishment on him. What a king. What a king. There's no contest. Jesus is king. What a king we have. What a king we serve. He is king. In the external debate, he is king. Listen to God, his interpretation. He is king. In the internal debate, he is king because he died for me even though I'm a rebellious sinner. What a king. No contest. Well, not just is Jesus the king and there's no contest. We see that Jesus is king, but he's also a king that is in control. Second point, Jesus is king and he's in control. And you might be looking at this circumstance, this situation that Jesus is walking through and go, Mark, control here? Here is a man put on a cross, being abused, having his, his clothes stripped from him, and you want to tell me that he's in control? Come on. Really? How do you, how do you know? And what would you, how could I show you that he was in control? How could I show you in some way that this circumstance is being orchestrated to achieve a desired outcome? How could I show you that? Do you know what I mean? Let me ponder with me. If, if we're watching the New South Wales game on Wednesday night, New South Wales versus Queensland rugby league game, if five minutes into the game I said to you, New, Zealand, uh, New South Wales is going to lose you probably wouldn't be that impressed by that prediction, right? You probably wouldn't be like, whoa, it's like Mark somehow has the ability to orchestrate this event to achieve his desired prediction, his desired outcome. No. I mean, I, I, was, probably, I was just one amongst millions of voices saying five minutes in, yeah, we've lost this again. All right? 
what if somehow thousands of years before there was specific moment by moment evidence of what was going to happen in that game, game two on Wednesday night. And it was the, the, the players were named, the score was named, specific details were there. And then I was able to show you on the night as it's unfolding, look, this was, uh, this was actually written down thousands of years before. And then you might be kind of going, oh, okay, something's going on here. It's as if someone is in control of this. Someone might be orchestrating this game to achieve a desired outcome. How's that? You'll be stopping and pondering something's going on here, right? John wants us to realise that what is going on in this moment, even here, in this moment as Jesus is suffering, King Jesus is going through excruciating, horrible suffering, John wants us to see that he's actually in control, that Jesus is king and he's in control. Look with me. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Oh, whoops. (laughs) Sorry, just bumped the water. Should be right, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfil the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is a quote from Psalm 22 and I think what's going on here is John kind of wants it to be like the first domino which then causes a whole lot of dominoes to collapse into your mind referring to all these prophecies in the the Old Testament. Predictions of things to come. If you know your Old Testament well, it's full of predictions about this coming king. It's full of predictions and it's almost like specific moment by moment. Here are the characters, here are the the specific truths that you need to know so that when it happens, it'll be stunningly obvious he is the forever king and he's in control. And so John draws our attention to this specific detail. The soldiers who have divided up his clothes and then they gamble for the, the fifth item, the tunic. And this is made reference to in Psalm 22, which is written about a thousand years before this specific event. About a thousand, did you get that? A thousand years before. Not five minutes into the game. A thousand years before. And the Old Testament is full of prophecies that, are, that should overwhelm us with the argument that, that God, that Jesus is King, who is behind and orchestrating these events to achieve a desired outcome. Even here, even in this horrible suffering, it should be evident that, that, it, that Jesus is in control. Whether it's the prophecies that, uh, I think it was Micah who predicted or prophesied that he was going to be born in uh, Jerusalem. <laughs> or uh, Hosea predicted and prophesied that he was, his family would have to flee to Egypt. And these are the kind of things that, you know, when you're a baby in the womb, you can't really decide where you're going to be born. You can't manipulate that kind of thing. Uh, fleeing to Egypt and, and the reason, you can't manipulate that kind of thing. When you're on a cross, you can't really manipulate 
whether people are going to gamble over your clothes, like that's a bit outside of your control if you're a mere man, right? Uh, if you are on the cross and you just die, um, you can't manipulate that whilst everyone around you is getting their bones broken. Moses prophesied that the future king, the, the forever king, would not have a bone broken. And as they come to Jesus when he's dead, do they break a bone? No. They go, whoa, he's already dead, let's pierce his side instead. These are the kind of things that you think, okay, whoa. It's as if someone's in control and orchestrating these events to achieve a desired outcome. Even here, even in the midst of horrible suffering, Jesus is king and he's in control. Let me make some observations about that. When you're going through suffering, perhaps you're like me, and sometimes the first thing that comes to mind is either God's in control and he's angry at me, or God loves me but he's just not quite in control, not in this situation. But as I look at John 19, I see a circumstance with incredible suffering And I learned that Jesus is in control. And I can learn and apply that to my suffering. And as I look at John 19, I see God's in control and if I was present in that moment, I might not quite get it until later that there is a desired outcome, there is good in this moment. And maybe in your present suffering, whatever you're facing, maybe it's illness, maybe it's broken relationship, maybe it's even just the challenge of uh, decisions that haven't gone your way and it tests you and you ponder what's going on, God. As we look at John 19, we see that Jesus is in control and in this situation we know that he's achieving something good for us in this How much more can we then expand that to understand that whatever you are facing in your situation, your suffering, Jesus is king and he's in control and he's working out good for you and you might not get it in this chapter of your life until the final chapter. It might not be, you might not have the full clarity until the final chapter but at least in this, as you look at in this moment, in John 19 you can at least learn to love God God more. As you look at this moment, this suffering, this horrible suffering, we can learn and encounter a God that loves us. And I challenge you that what you're facing might be a situation where you might not fully understand the mystery and the purpose of the desired outcome yet, and yet in this you can learn to love God more. Another lesson in it is is how and who we cling to in and through it. Um, just during the week, we took my, um, my second daughter, Matilda, she's four, she's just turned four, and we took her to get uh, some needles, which we explained were good for her, but it, she didn't quite get, she didn't quite understand the reason, the purpose, the reason we were taking her to the doctor, and that the needles would actually be a good thing for her. So here's what she did. When she was in there, she sat kind of, facing my wife, Bianca, sat on Bianca's lap, legs around, wrapped around Bianca, arms wrapped around Bianca, 
um, as the needle was given to her in her arm. She was walking through something. I'm so proud of the way she walked through that. But what I want us to realise is that way, what she was doing was she was clinging to her mum. She didn't quite get what was going on, but she knew that her mum was with her, that her mum loved her, and so she chose to cling to her mum through that. And that's important, right? Because what we cling to in a difficult time, in a trial or in suffering, speaks volumes about what we treasure. Like if I, if I witness a kid in a toy shop or in a lolly shop or in the supermarket and they grab some lollies and the parents making it real difficult for them to continue to cling to that lolly, but they continue to cling to it. You kind of think, well, they really treasure that Mars bar, right? They re- they, that is like of most importance to them because that parent is giving them a hard time and making it really hard and trying to like rip from their grasp and yet they are clinging to it. It's stunningly obvious what that kid treasures because even when it's hard, they won't give up. Matilda in that moment was clinging to her mum. Clinging. In a hard time, just trusting her mum. It hurt, but she knew her mum was with her and she clung to her mum. I want to encourage you as we look at John 19, we see and encounter a king who is in control. And there might be mystery for us, as there was for Matilda but we can cling to the God who is in control. We can cling and look to John 19 and see a king who's in control and in this circumstance he's actually working out something incredibly good for you and I, right? Working out our redemption, our salvation, dying in our place. We as sinners, Christ dying in our place. Whatever you might be facing, look to Jesus. He is the king and he's in control. This brings me to my third point. Jesus is king and he is full of compassion. Jesus is king and he is full of compassion. So the soldiers have been gambling and they've divided up his clothes and they come to the fifth garment. There's four soldiers. They come to the fifth so they gamble over it and the fifth is one that they couldn't tear it's a tunic. And from the research that I was doing during the week, I learned that, that the tunic, the undergarment, was actually something that would often be made by a mother and given to their son. And so here's the soldiers touching something that no doubt probably was close to Jesus and it probably touches Jesus' heart at that moment. Perhaps there's a whole lot of nostalgia and memories that give rise to Jesus. And so Jesus, in the thick of his suffering, Incredible physical pain and yet to even think and fathom that the wrath of God against the sin, my sin, your sin being put on him in that moment, in that moment of what he is facing, in this circumstance, his gaze now falls onto Mary, the one who's been his mother. It's the compassion of Jesus, right? That in this, you know, like if you're facing death, no doubt there's a whole lot of clarity of thought and you would almost excuse someone if, as they face death that their thoughts are of themselves. But here Jesus on the cross, his thoughts go to his mother. Ponder Mary and the life that she's had as we now look at her and as Jesus' gaze falls upon her full of compassion for her. Ponder Mary. Right at the start of Luke's Gospel, just as Jesus has been born, let me read it, uh, 
an old man, Simeon, prophesies to Mary about the life of Jesus. And he says in Luke 2, verse 34, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. But, but that bit where he said, and a sword will pierce through your own soul was spoken to Mary and I want us to realise that that's actually kind of the life she lived. She had a hard life being the mother of Jesus, the Son of God. Even just ponder before he's born, right? Getting pregnant outside of marriage in those days is not cool and shameful and would have been putting her as the object of scorn and ridicule and gossip such that when they, they go back to Joseph's hometown, they're trying to find somewhere to, to have the baby, but no one, they're all slamming doors. It's not that they were full, but rather, no, 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 this is Joseph, and you've you got a baby? You got pregnant outside of marriage? No, you're not sleeping here. You're not coming in here. And so Mary has to walk through that. And then Mary, as she has her baby, has to lay her boy in an animal's food trough. No mum wants to do that. And then a few years on, as a toddler, word gets out that this Mary's boy is the king. And King Herod doesn't like that and so he's kind of got this rampaging plan that he's just going to wipe out toddler boys. And so they flee to Egypt, leaving behind a flood of tears of people as their boys' lives are lost. And Mary has to have that knowledge that their lives, the tears... Why is all that happening? Because of her boy and who he is. That would be hard. And then as a 12-year-old, it's going through this, this moment of like, where is he? Where has he gone? And not being able to find him, only to then find that he's in the synagogue teaching in his father's house. Or fast forward to when his public ministry begins. Which, by the way, when he was 12, is probably the last time, it's the last time we hear the mention of Joseph. And so most commentators understand and conclude that at some point then from there on, Joseph was died. And so here's Mary as the sole parent now, her oldest son now being the one that ought to look after her as custom in those days. And as he begins his public ministry, no doubt there's joy in watching him teach and do wonderful things uh, in the name of God. Uh, but yet there is still shame in her hometown. They still mock her, ridicule her. They don't believe that Jesus is anything special. He's just that travelling salesman offering fake miracles which we never witnessed, we never saw in the hometown. And that's Mary's boy walking through that. And now here she stands at the foot of cross. As we learnt last week, Dave kind of explained about the whip which was designed, there was a whip and Jesus was flogged and beaten and in essence this whip was designed to open up his flesh to the point of being beyond recognition, Isaiah prophesied. She stands now encountering horrible suffering. She's had a hard life. She's had it difficult. Living hasn't been easy for her. 
So Jesus, as he himself is suffering, the gaze of the king now falls though on Mary. And the gaze of the king is a gaze that is full of compassion. Look with me at his words. Verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciples, whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Here is Mary having lived a hard life and Jesus, full of compassion, wants to care for her in this situation and wants to see that she is cared for. He wants to see that she is looked after. She needs to realise and recognise and feel the gaze of a king full of compassion for her who is not only dying for her sins yet seeking to care for her in this situation. The disciple whom Jesus loved, most commentators, most of us understand that that would have been the disciple John. John's standing here. Now, if we understand Matthew, I think it's Matthew 27, all the disciples, as Jesus was arrested, they fled. They abandoned. Some of the wording, I think, is is it could be offended or you might even interpret that as they were ashamed of Jesus. Self-preservation overruled Christ's exaltation. Self-preservation overruled Christ's exaltation in that moment. It's kind of like the prodigal, right? Isn't that what the prodigal son did in Luke 15? Self-preservation. I just want the money and I want to, I want to go and do things that I want to do. I want to be the star. I want it to be about me. And, and so John, in some ways, is guilty of running, is guilty of running away from Jesus. And here he is standing at the foot of the cross, aware that he has run from Jesus, aware that he in that moment abandoned, was ashamed of Jesus. And as the gaze of compassion fell on Mary, John also needed the gaze of compassion to fall on him. Having been someone who had run and abandoned Jesus, who had been ashamed of Jesus, who had been a prodigal, Now the gaze of compassion falls on John, that John might see that Jesus is full of forgiveness and compassion for him. That in this moment, John, the one, the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, this disciple might know that he's forgiven and Jesus is full of compassion for him, despite him having run away. He now comes back to the cross. It's, it makes me kind of think of Luke 9 and Luke 14, similar passages where Jesus spoke about whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up the cross. And that's kind of been the journey of John because whilst he's pursued self-preservation, he now realises that he actually has to deny that and go back to the cross. And at the foot of the cross, he feels the gaze of Jesus fall upon him and now finds a new privilege to serve Jesus. What a joy that must have been for John. Makes me think, 
in some ways, if I can think of a secular uh, out there illustration, it's like um, my own experience of playing soccer. So I grew up playing a lot of soccer. And, uh, you know, I've already shared that I was pretty competitive. And uh, you put a guy that has a little bit of talent into a soccer team who's competitive, then I like to hog the ball. So I was the kid that, that uh, would wanted to score. And, uh, you know, I'd, I heard you guys, I heard the, my teammates saying hog. Um, <laughs> and it hurt. But I was okay because I still got the goals. So... <laughs> Genuinely, we weren't the best team, uh, but I loved being the star. <laughs> I loved it. It was about me. And uh, that was a, as, a, as a young kid. And, uh, but in some ways, it was a lesson for me to learn more and more how to actually enjoy soccer. <laughs> the more I learnt that it wasn't about me, the more I learned that soccer wasn't about making me look good and just getting the ball to me so that I could do my thing, and the more I learned that actually in soccer you can share the ball and um, make others look good, I actually started to enjoy soccer a whole lot more. I sort of realised that it was, it was more about the part I play rather than me. And just to be a part was awesome if we won a game. I didn't, it didn't have to be important that my part was like lifted up and I was awesome and I had to be the superstar. And sometimes I think that's what's going on here. John, John's run away. He, he's kind of got that superstar mentality maybe where it's like it's not about Jesus, it's about me. Self-preservation. And he's come back to the cross and now he gets the joy of the gaze of Christ falling on him. The King Jesus falls on him full of compassion so he no longer has to kind of be this pathetic hog superstar, but actually can just play a part and enjoy playing his part. And actually enjoy that. Soccer was so much more enjoyable for me then. And I want to make some observations about this. I, I reckon there are people in this room that can relate to Mary. And maybe you've had a hard life. Maybe there's things that have been knocking you down circumstances have just been, seemed like they've just gone from one difficult thing to the next. Or maybe you've just had a hard week and presently, right, this, right now in this moment, it's, just, it's, it's an effort to live, to get through things right now. It's an effort, it's a struggle. And you can relate to Mary. This morning, John 19 wants you to, to, wants to teach you that he is full of compassion, that Jesus is the King and he is full of compassion and I want you to feel the gaze of the Saviour, the gaze of the King who is in control in your circumstances to fall upon you and I want you to know that he loves you and that he cares for you and that he will mobilise others in his body, in the bride to love you and care for you, that they will be his hands and feet to love and care for you. that you might know that he loves you and is full of compassion for you, whatever you're going through. But I want to understand, I want us to consider that some of us are probably in this room relate to John and we've run. We've, we wanted to be the superstar and, and it's about me. And it's humbling, right, to come back to the cross. It's humbling to actually go, yeah, you are king. 
to lay down because I loved being in a team where I thought it was about me and I was a superstar. And it was hard for me to let that go so that I actually could then not be the superstar. But I tell you, the joy that I found in laying down being a superstar and enjoying just being a part of a team, there was so much more in that. Come back to the cross, humble yourself, and at the feet of the cross, realize that Christ forgives you. His gaze on you is full of compassion. He is there on the cross in your place that you might know his full acceptance. Whatever you've done, wherever you've run to, that he forgives you. And now full of compassion gives you another role, a privilege to serve. John, in this situation, is, is told to care for the mother of Jesus. One of the commentators that I was reading asked the question, hey, if you were in that situation and you were John and Jesus said, hey, care for my mother, would you do it? And I'm sure most of us would be like, yeah, I'd care for Mary for sure. I would do such a good job. In uh, Mark 3, Jesus was teaching and, and his teaching is interrupted as someone comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, you, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus actually says, whoever does the will of God is my mother. Whoever does the will of God is my brother. Will you care for the mother of Jesus then? Whoever does the will of God. In Matthew 25, Jesus was teaching and he said, he who cares for the least of these was caring for me. I want to challenge us, church, that that in this, Jesus is actually giving us the privilege not to be the superstar, but to play a part in the brighter Christ that we might be able to love and care for others. The mother of Jesus, the brother and sisters of Jesus are all around us with opportunities to care. And this is not a rebuke of you, Sovereign Grace. I have encountered and witnessed this in awesome ways. Eight weeks ago, we had a little girl, Autumn. She was born eight weeks ago and we have just been, Bianca and myself are so grateful and thankful for the care of this church for the many Johns in this church, if you like, who have lavished us with care. We have known the love and compassion and care of King Jesus through you. I've witnessed uh, the way that my life group has cared for others. Just this week, I was catching up with Kate. Kate Eastman has just recently been um, diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And... Uh, you know, the same week, I think her fridge was her freezer was packed full of food from CJ, and her her home was cleaned by Lucy, uh, Bridget, and, and many others in our, our church have just been there for her, walking beside her in and through this, praying with her. Many Johns caring, and that she might know the compassion of Jesus in this time that she's struggled and found it hard. What a king we have, hey? But yet, may that not be because we do this well, an opportunity to just go, yeah, good job, but rather be spurred on. Keep going in love and good deeds to love others, love each other. To be there, even when it's hard, because it can be hard. I know sometimes I rock up at church and I just want to be the superstar. You know, I, I fall back into my under six soccer mindset. And I just want the, I want the glory to be about me. And, uh, you know, I'm tired. I don't really want to 
think of others. I don't want to pass the ball to others, so to speak. I just want it to be about me. I'll come to church. It's about me. I'll praise God. I'll sing and then I'll leave, not having to have to speak to anyone because that would be annoying or difficult because it's about me. Guys, what it is, Jesus calls us to lay that down. It's actually a way, back, way better, more enjoyable part, part to play to actually be John's and love others. As Jesus said, whoever loved the least of these has loved me. What a king we have. Guys, I would be so competitive. I would be so competitive to get myself onto that step. I wanted to be king of the castle and I wanted to then shout out that you're the dirty rascal. Jesus is king and there is no contest. Lay it down and enjoy that even whether there's an external debate or an internal debate, it doesn't matter. Lay that down. Jesus is king. And this king, Jesus is king, he is in control. Whatever you face, he is in control. In the most difficult situations, in the most horrific suffering in John 19, he is in control, even there, even here. And he loves you. And he's at work in all things for your good. And Jesus is king, and so allow the gaze of the king who is full of compassion to fall upon you that forgives you wherever you have run to this week, wherever you have run to in the last years of your life. He forgives you and now compassionately gives you a task to play your part, to exalt and make much of a wonderful king. What a king we serve, hey? Let me pray. It is amazing love that you, my king, would die for me. Thank you for John 19 that we, we encounter a king who is dying for us. And as it was written above him, Jesus is king. May that truth be resounding in our hearts and our minds throughout this week. You are king, King Jesus. And whatever we face, whatever difficult situation we encounter or have or are presently in the middle of, Lord, may we just be aware that you are in control and you are working to achieve a desired outcome that you're at work in all things for good and you're a good God and you are king and you're full of compassion and may those who are going through hard times, who life has been hard, who presently it's difficult, may they know your compassion this morning. Would you surround them with the body of Christ in love and care? Would you lavish upon them an awareness of how much you love them? Would you mobilise us who feel like we're the Johns, that we would be laying down our superstar mentality and surrendering to say that, yes, you are king, we deny ourselves and we take up the cross to enjoy playing a part for your sake. Thank you, King Jesus. Amen.